Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the Professor, Miss Stephen Palmer. Hello there. Tonight we have not one but two movies as we hand over the viewing controls to one of our listeners for another round of listener roulette, and we have a pick from Stephen as we look at uh, Stephen. Ch- this right, isn't it? Stephen Charles, uh, the King of Comedy. I just say that right, isn't it? That's what I watched. <laughs> just, I was about to say my head is like comedy, Stephen isn't it? Chow, because it's too close to your own name, so it's what's thrown me off here. Uh, <laughs> but before we get into all of that viewing tonight, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And obviously, since the last episode, we wrapped up Horror Month, which was fun. Um, perhaps wouldn't have done it again as a double with like normal horror month. I would have just focused on one thing rather than trying to do sixty-two movies in in uh, the space of of thirty-one days. It was a little bit of a push, but we got it done. So uh, if you've obviously been following along on social medias, thank you to you. And yeah, I think it was um, it was it was a fun experience, and we got to see some things. How was your Halloween, Stephen? Did you you have fun not having to watch movies every day? Well, I I don't go in for these thirty one days of anything, but I did watch a couple of horror movies um, in or around the time. Um, a couple like that I hadn't. It's it sort of cinema shame sort of ones. Yeah. Um, so I watched. Finally, got around to watching House, a movie that. I've been enamoured by the poster for since about 1984, whenever it came out. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't aware that you hadn't ever seen it, so... No, um, but I picked up... So Arrow did... Well, they've bizarrely done both the box set and the individual four films, so I just picked up the first film. Yeah. Um, um, I've got to admit, I was slightly disappointed with it. I, I Only because I don't think it was the film I was expecting, and I wasn't expecting it to be such a comedy horror. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, it was fine. Um, the other thing I watched was Ginger Snaps, which I don't know how I missed that. I said the uh, the '90s werewolf movie. The '90s sort of Heather's but a werewolf movie, yeah. Um, and I bloody love that. <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> bloody fantastic. Um, I'm not usually one for werewolf movies. I, I don't know why. Although you know, American Werewolf in London and the howling there's a few you know yeah. that i like but as of, of the classic monsters um it's probably one i go for least even though it's probably one of the more interesting um you know subtext to it and uh, yeah no i really love ginger snaps but um yeah i did two horror movies instead of 31 or even 62 well i did a couple of 
Asian-y ones as well. I, I, I think I told you last time I watched Mr. Vampire 2, didn't I? Yes, um, you did. And I did continue, and I watched Mr. Vampire 3, which is sort of back to the sort of the little period roots of the first film. Um, bloody brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoyed it. Um, although I think, thinking back on it, I had probably seen it before and just forgotten I'd seen it. But yeah, really, um, really entertaining I mean, the Mr. Vampire movies, which I think you might be talking about in a little while, <laughs> um, with, a, with a modern uh, retelling of one of them, or of, of them, um, are, are a huge amount of fun. And uh, yeah, this, this one was definitely much more sort of slapstick and fun, and a little bit like The Frighteners, okay, the yeah. Jay Fox movie yeah. that was made um, many years afterwards, but it's got sort of similar idea where a guy's going around having a couple of, um, I mean there's no vampires in it by the way, it's ghosts <laughs> but you know, Mr. Vampire films can be like that but yes, basically there's this sort of trickster Taoist monk who's got a couple of tame ghosts and he goes around doing fake exorcisms and certainly bumps in to a real Taoist monk and a real scary she-devil demon thing but it's it's huge amount of fun oh cool anyway go on let's let's have a list that's my that's my um that's my whole yeah i mean i'm still obviously going back and forth over what we're going to do for next year's like month-long challenge where we're going to do something like anime or we're going to like perhaps do a decade or another genre so if anyone wants to put their ideas forth, we will certainly consider them. Um, so, but as I said, as of yet, it's very up in the air what the next one's going to be. So, and hopefully by that point, I will like completely forgotten about what this month was like and be like, oh, this is going to be so exciting again. Um, but finishing off our list, um, first up is Peninsula, which is obviously the sequel to Train to Busan. Um, this is a film which I think was always going to be tricky to follow up because, you know, a lot of people had high expectations because they love Train to Busan. And with this one, it sort of sees the story switch into more like a Escape from New York style story with South Korea now overrun with zombies. And the film basically following this former soldier who's lost his sister and nephew during the evacuation and now is recruited by a bunch of Chinese mobsters to go back into the zombie-infested South Korea to retrieve a truck containing $20 million. And once inside, he discovers that there are still people living within the zone. There's a rogue militia, there's a, a family that he also connects with as well. And it really becomes, uh, it become, as I say, it becomes more like an escape from New York where he basically is trying to get this family out of the infested area and i think much like world war z this is a film that's like best focusing on the movie it is rather than the movie that it could have been and i think this is where a lot of people's disappointment sort of came from is they sort of like wanted more strange busan and instead got something completely different but you know there's some fun action beats here and some great set pieces including a really great car chase through the city streets and the fact that you add this militia threat it's sort of whenever you add the human threat in with the zombie threat it always makes things a lot more interesting and especially as it becomes like this race to reclaim the truck but it also throws in that question of like why in every post-apocalyptic situation do we have like these sort of pit fighter or like squid game style setups where 
people are generally amused by having people like brawl with zombies or fights in the ring surrounded by zombies or finding some game to play with the zombies. I just kind of just let the zombies be and focus on building their little society within the walls away from the zombies. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I know exactly what you mean. I think, I think Peninsula's biggest problem is that it's the sequel to Train to Busan. And <laughs> Train to Busan did an interesting thing with the zombie genre, i.e. setting it on a train. At least it put it in a new location. I think it also had that interesting sort of father-daughter thing going on. Yeah. Which sort of really humanised that that wider story. And it was almost as if there's this terrible big thing happening in the outside world, but a kind of small story was happening whilst we were watching it. I think... um, what's the um is it soul station isn't it the animated prequel because the director of 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 20 percent animated yeah he did um Um, (coughs) yeah he did soul station he also did uh king of pigs as well that that's right which um and soul station is also really interesting as well although probably it's sort of sort of telling the story of how we got to the first five minutes of train to busan but just the bigger picture, although there is a sort of one character that crosses over. But both both really interesting. Peninsula reminds me of George Romero's Land of the Dead. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but, you know, you get where it, it becomes, and, and I absolutely hear your escape from New York. That that kind of sort of post-apocalyptic world where nut jobs have taken over it's like oh there's that other that's that british film isn't there um with sean pert oh you're talking about um doomsday doomsday that's exactly what i'm well done sir doomsday (laughs) that movie which like blatantly rips off excalibur and mad max and aliens it's so like it so shamelessly rips them off and i know there's people out there who like love the hell out of that movie but every when i was watching it it was like this is just shamelessly ripping off other people's ideas. It, it has, although it's got it's got a couple of interesting moments. But they're, they're all these. That's what you say. You, you just said Mad Max as well. And Peninsula just lives in this world where apparently twenty years after society breaks down a little bit, we all turn into gladiators and 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 all get really into punk music. And I, I, I it it feels a bit like that. However. I do think it gets a bit of a bad rep because I actually think it's really entertaining. Yeah. And it's not its fault. Its older brother is just much cleverer than it. <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what I mean? It's um, it's it's a solid, entertaining movie. But like Land of the Dead, it's going to be nobody's favourite in that film series. You know, <laughs> it's um, that that that's why I sort of got that feel to it. But I think it's I, I think it got a real, I think it got a bit of a uh, sort of bad, bad rubber the green it might, a film I certainly would watch again I think um, next up we have the, has- uh, the happiness of the categories where the hills are alive with the sounds of screaming it's a quirky comedy musical from Takashi Miike um, one of the more random entries during his outlaw period kind of like audition to that respect and it's basically about this family called the Katakuris who open a guest house only for the guests to start 
randomly dying in the most bizarre of ways and things only get worse when they start coming back as zombies and let's not forget there's also an active volcano nearby now obviously when we look at the outlaw period i mean it's full of all kinds of oddities we've got ultraviolet yakuza fix psycho thrillers and we've also got films like this where he's throwing in song and dance numbers claymation dream sequences and even the karaoke sequence and it really highlights once again that when it comes to Mike, that there's no way of knowing what film you're going to get until you actually start to watch it. And I think this is a, such a fun movie to to check out, especially if you think Mike is just also like ultra violence and Yakuza flicks, because while he's obviously toned down his style in more recent years, this is still a lot of fun, just purely because it just goes all out with the randomness and it sort of has this bonkers plot but it sort of fully commits to it and i think that's why it lands it so well and i think uh it's still a really fun one to check out and i think even if you're not a fan of Mike's other films i think you may still like this one. Oh, i love the happiness of the katakuris i mean you haven't even mentioned claymation <laughs> it's, got, it's got claymation sequence and everything of course it's a um it's a remake of a really fantastic South Korean black comedy um, called The Quiet Family, yep. directed by um, Kim Ji-Woon, which uh, is one of the first films of both Choi Min-sik and Song Kang-ho. So it's a quite a star-studded little one, which is, that's a really fun, dark comedy. And Happiness of the Katakuri sort of takes that black comedy aspect, keeps the story kind of the same, and then just piles on madness and randomness and i think it's a i mean it's not very scary mate but it's <laughs> bloody delightful um and there's a film actually i'm surprised after all our episodes we've never got around to covering i guess we just need we, we've been a bit careful about um having too many takashi Mike films i guess we've covered it twice now in passing because we obviously the originally as part of Mike month it got mentioned in passing mm. there. It's getting mentioned in passing again now. So we will swing back around and, and look at it on a future episode. I think that's like Bad People in China. It's one of those Mickey movies we want to cover. It's just at the same time it's slotting in amongst everything else that we want to cover. So uh, Next up, we have The Hopping Vampires of Vampire Cleanup Department. Uh, this one came out at the same time as Rigor Mortis, and I've had a lot of people tell me after I've watched this one that Rigor Mortis is the better of the two. But this is a riotous Hong Kong comedy which sees a student called Tim who discovers he's immune to vampire bites and finds himself soon recruited to join the Vampire Cleanup Department, who are a secret government organisation that have taken over from the terrorist monks who previously dealt with the vampire threat. And now... With many of the members now in the sort of like advanced stage, the determined they're going to bring in some new blood into the department, even if it means hiring a klutz like Tim. Uh, this film's really not worth for featuring the Jiangxi, who are better known as the Hopping Vampires that we see so often within Hong Kong vampire cinema, and we've seen them in things such as like you know Mr. Vampire, Black Tavern, and. While this film is kind of like really throwaway in nature, it's also really fun, especially with the focus really being on the comedy over the shocks. But the eccentricness of the film just really sort of makes it worth giving um, a watch. So I find it like, you know, it's worth watching once at least, I guess. So I'm I'm going to have a contrary opinion 
Firstly, it came out nearly 10 years after Rigor Mortis. (laughs) It's fine. Um, I really enjoyed Vampire Cleanup Department. And I think that's because it was definitely riffing on. And maybe it's just because I've been re-watching the Mr. Vampire films recently. But I think it it just... It feels like a modern... Re, it's nothing. Nothing new comes of it, but there's, do you know that there's there's that whole romance angle, in in Vampire Cleanup Department. Yeah. Well, that's in one of the that's in that kind of appears in scenes in that like with the cars and stuff appear in other Mister Vampire films. So it's kind of respectful. It's kind of fun. I I really enjoyed it. Rigor Mortis. So you haven't seen Rigor Mortis? No, I've not seen Rigor Mortis. Oh, so Rigor Mortis is more like a. Uh, you know like Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison and those comic book people like take old 60s comic book tropes and then sort of reinvent them into something darker yeah. Rigor Mortis is a bit like the Vertigo version of a Mr. Vampire film Okay, and so I don't think it's particularly funny um, I don't think it's trying to be. It's 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 trying to draw out the 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 horror in those films. Um, so it's a kind of interesting experiment. And Juno Mac, I think, is a really interesting um, actor and director. Anyway, but I think it's something. I, I think it's a film. I think it's worth us looking at in the future. Um, but they are very different beasts, <laughs> although both absolutely coming from that um, Jiangxi Hunter sort of root common root but um rich oh yeah richard Ng is in both rigor mortis and mr vampire 3 he's the best thing about mr vampire 3 <laughs> sorry i keep going on about that but yeah i but vampire cleanup department right it took me a couple of i had, had it a little while before i got around to watching it i watched it fairly recently and i really enjoyed it um for what it is is it an all-time classic no but is it utterly respectful and a bit of fun for sure and rounding out the month, we had One Cut of the Dead, um, which I think most people would know what that is. But if you don't, it's uh, a low-budget zombie comedy that's also an ambitious filmmaking experiment at the same time. As it's, about, it's much about the challenges of independent filmmaking as it is about the crew dealing with a zombie threat, with the film switching the focus of the film as it changes... So we're watching the film being made, and then we see them filming the the film, um, and it sort of like builds to this mo- really incredible like one shot finale, which also features probably the most creative use of a human pyramid ever. Um, now the director has struggled to follow up the film, attempting a semi sequel during lockdown, but the film never sort of like captured the same sort of energy of this one because this one's such like a highly engaging experience and you generally root for this ragtag band of filmmakers whose own creativity sort of adds to the fun much like the pressure of shooting especially in that one take sequence and it certainly had a number of uh, noteworthy critics who've sung its praises including Joe Bob Briggs who included it as part of the uh, last drive-in I mean, I've spoken about this film before. I think calling it a horror movie is a bit of a stretch. It's As you say, it's a film about independent Japanese cinema. And when you see 
you know sites like Midnight Eye and others basically close down because they say there's no good independent Japanese cinema anymore this film both tells you why and also shows them that they're wrong <laughs> um, I think it's just a uh, yeah it, the, the whole one take thing at the beginning is fantastic but then there's some drama around it in this in this sort of second half and everything's kind of deconstructed and we see how the film got made um, I agree with you um, the fact that We've we've actually had two spin-offs. <laughs> there's the there's the uh, the TV in Hollywood spin-off, and then the one you said, uh, Mission Remote, yeah. which actually I think was uploaded free to YouTube, wasn't it? Um, maybe we've had enough. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, there's a French language remake just seen on Wikipedia as well. Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, stop it, everybody. But. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see Sinichiro Ueda try something else um, because this is a genius film. In fact, I'm pretty certain I put it into a very early edition of our top 50, 100, 150, 200 Asian films because it just blew me away. It's probably sort of the most modern Japanese film that's seriously blown me away. Um, and I wish they'd make more. And when you think it was made for $25,000, mate, pretty pretty impressive <laughs> kind of a fun throwback to like the days of the american indie um scene when you would have mm. films like you know slacker and clerks and they would just sort of like film these things by the sort of skin of their teeth and it very much is sort of like a love letter to that sort of style of filmmaking now and um that's why i think i kind of liked it it's sort of like these people just going out there to like film this this idea that they've got and regardless of like the limitations that they have regarding like equipment and casts and crew and they just sort of like go out there and shoot it and I think that's that sort of uh, ragtag band sort of only adds to the charm of the film really so and and you know with the with the sort of kind of death of the Japanese overstretching it the Japanese film industry in the sense they only make big budget um manga and anime live action versions this feels like all they make anymore um with the as film production becomes cheaper and easier in terms of equipment in terms of editing in terms of the democratization of the platforms you know it's quite easy to make a film and put it on youtube or vimeo or um one of the other video sharing platforms it just you just wished it created that that scene again and and that the indie japanese cinema wasn't just limited to whatever the window can get their hands on that's uh yeah but i, th- I thought it was brilliant but it just it just make me wish where, where's the movement behind it because that was 2017 that was five years ago um and and so sort of it just hasn't been followed up on, which is a shame. Of course, lots of people are now going to write on the Facebook group saying, "Actually, Stephen, you're fine." There's all these films have come after it, but please bring them to my attention. So, kicking off tonight's double feature, we have listener roulette and listener Marcus. You have taken up the mantle for tonight's episode.
So tonight's listener roulette selection is chosen by listener Marcus, and you have decided that you would like us to cover Killer Constable, which is from the same director as Boxer's Omen, which we covered as part of our Asian Horror Month, and a movie which really bonkers in sort of style and visuals, but ultimately didn't really resonate with myself. So going into Killer Constable, his... uh, entry into the uh, it's hard to say I mean would we call this wuxia or we just call this sort of kung fu I would think it sort of leads more towards kung fu oh it's I would say it's a wuxia but um, it, it fits a number of the rules of wuxia movies um, but it's also almost a film noir <laughs> in some ways it's like a, a wuxia version of a film noir for me and also I actually sort of think it's a little bit more like a Chambara movie, a Japanese Chambara movie, because it's all about swordplay. There isn't a lot of kung fu in it, is there? A sort of hand-to-hand martial arts at all. So, and we could agree to disagree, but this is really interesting because I think you reached out to me and told me that um, Marcus had chosen this, and I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll give that a watch," forgetting I've not only seen it before, but I reviewed it for Eastern Kicks back in 2016. <laughs> So I had a I had a quick look back and to find out I bloody loved it. So I was quite it was quite nice to um watch it again. But it is um it's kind of that late era Shaw Brothers. So it's 1980. So they haven't they've still got a few years to run, but it's the same year that Hex came out. It's when they're sort of hunting for something different and this just feels on the cusp where it's a lot darker than I mean, I'm saying it's a lot darker than other Shaw Brothers movies. Obviously, we've seen movies where people's arms get chopped off and people die and all kinds of terrible things happen. But this is a film where there are no good guys. Everyone's a shit. <laughs> and, yeah, just it's just sort of morally bankrupt. That's why I think of it as a film noir. I don't know, maybe you saw it differently, yeah. but that's that's how I saw it. Well, the film is uh, directed by Q. Che Hyung, um, and it follows a chief constable who's known as the killer constable because he has a reputation for bringing back robbers dead or alive but most likely they'll be dead if they encounter him and he's been tasked with locating two million gold tails um which have been stolen from a vault from the forbidden city and the empress wants the money returned within 10 days and he's been sort of tasked with tracking down the people who have stolen the gold as well as uh teaming up with a small but loyal band of followers to get the job done um, along the way truly living up to his reputation as the killer constable this is the first time watching myself I'd never seen this one before and stars uh, Chen Kuan Tei as the uh, title of killer constable who's in a whole bunch of uh, movies I mean he's open he's I think he's still making films because he's in things like the man with the iron fist uh, he's also in um Tiger Gate Inn, I want to say, is it the Donnie Yen movie? Yeah, sorry, Dragon Tiger Gate. Um, yeah, that's right. And as well as in other fun movies such as like The Flying Guillotine and The Boxer from Shang Tung. So I think if they ever get around to doing a short scope volume three, this would certainly be a film that I think definitely would need to be included because it's a really interesting 
take on what's a very sort of traditional setup for a Shaw Brothers movie because we've seen numerous times before either like caches of gold being like defended or going missing and so that aspect of the story is certainly nothing new but what makes this film certainly really interesting is just as I said this character the killer constable and the fact that he goes on this mission to locate the gold which he sees him encountering a number of unique bandits that have been sort of caught up in this plot before the film ultimately delivers a really refreshing and sort of out of nowhere twist really um as it leads up to a rather bloody and ugly downbeat ending but um i don't i don't think it's arguable mate it's incredibly downbeat <laughs> i mean it's um yeah like like i said that the lead character is a shit even a bunch of his colleagues think he's a shit <laughs> you know that, that he's he he, he, well, he he's judge jury and executioner um so he's incredibly capable but probably has not got a lot of humanity and nothing in this movie is redemptive for him um you know even like his best mate says i'm not going on this mission with you you're you're a terrible person <laughs> and and of course that's because he's part of the Manchurian um, occupiers of China at this time. So that's like an invading class and everybody we meet in the film, it's, it's, which is why it's kind of wooshery. So one of the things about a wusha movie is that the idea is, is that there are you know, there's an oppressive overlord of some sort, whether it's a, an emperor or a local lord or something like that. And the job of the hero is to kind of help out the oppressed masses. Um, in this film, he is one of the oppressors, <laughs> very much so. And we see all the poor, you know, the, the average Han Chinese are put upon and are the victims in every way, shape or form on this. And, and it's just... It's unrelentingly grim, but at the same time follows. You know, we just we just go from fight to fight to fight. There's a marvelous. Um, I think my favourite mate was the the guy with the darts. Oh yeah, the assassin. Who who yeah who one of the, one of the one of the people that Killer Constable is chasing down. And we're just going to call. Him yeah, Killer I think Constable. it's going to be a lot easier, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah, we're calling Killer. It's hunting down. Basically, gives his share of the of the haul to um this assassin guy in order to get him to basically get rid of killer constable for him and the, and the assassin just goes no i'm going to kill you instead that's a much easier way of making 300 tails or whatever 50 tails <laughs> of gold whatever it was and i just think do you know what i've waited years to see a paid assassin do that because just kill the person with the money and take the money off them it was brilliant and then it sort of comes to a there's a there's nothing incredibly flashy about this movie and it's and it's fighting but i do think it's really well staged and it's also um rain so much rain it's like that the batman film it's just filmed in rain and darkness and it doesn't look like a lot of Shaw Brother movies that I've seen previous to this point 
if you, if you, I think, hopefully, I'm explaining myself well. There's a certain something of the fact that it's, I don't know, made in 1980. Maybe it's a darker time. I don't know, but there's some, there's a, there's an unrelenting darkness about this movie. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I, something I really have to like mention as well. I mean, the fight sequences of this film are absolutely fantastically shot. I mean, not only does the we get to see the use of the wide lens because these are obviously very skilled martial artists or you know or i mean how would we describe because as you said already i mean it's a lot of sword play that's in used in this and certainly in terms of the action sequences these are very sort of skilled practitioners that we're seeing seeing taking part in these sequences and this is why we get to see such wonderful use of the wide lens and not only the wide lens but we get have scenes where we're watching from like cliff top or we're like down low the camera moves all over the place with this it's never just sort of like takes any sort of the traditional camera sort of setups and more when we look at sequences such as like when we have the coastal fight sequence which not only involves um the constable and his men being trapped in a ring of fire um we also get to see some incredible fire stunts as people are dragged into the fire there's the fact that one of his men are so loyal to him that one of them throws himself on the flames to like create a pathway but the stuntman doing it at one point seems to have his face like fully like face down in the flames which i thought was absolutely astounding and this isn't even taking into account the guy who gets dragged into this sort of circle fire it's i think not since we watched magnificent heroes have i sort of like looked at a stunt sequence especially a fire scene and wondered how did they actually do that because from what i can see a guy is literally having his face burnt off in this sequence oh a fire is also just so important in this film which also there's the bit you mentioned but the, the sort of the, the sort of the one of the two climaxes to the film takes place in a burning building at night and it's filmed you know you the building's clearly literally on fire <laughs> i know that seems an obvious thing to say but you know how often have you seen it where there's just like it's effects and it makes it look like it's there but the, they literally are, have burnt down a building too certainly from the outside and it's dark and it's on fire and it's like hell and it's i don't know i just i'm just not used to seeing shots like that and like you say there's there's people catch fire i i, I dread to think if anyone got injured mate because we know we know how um how close to the edge some of these sort of stunt artists are in hong kong um it's um people's limbs fly off um again in my review i was sort of going back to it and i was, I was impressed at the way that people do literally do seem to get stabbed and hurt and killed i mean it's not it's not completely gory but i just know just sometimes when we watch these movies as people seem to get away with quite a lot of damage yeah you don't in this movie yeah it, it feels um it's one of those it's like a computer game where you've only got one life <laughs> that's what it feels like what we get to see when we have like the fight in the in on the coast, and he he he's fighting one of the bandits who's like got a suit, basically a suit of armor, and he realizes that if he fights him in the ocean, then he's going to be off balance, so he can use this to advantage. And we get these little flashes where he's working out his strategy, and it's sort of like, oh, if I t put him in this location, he's off balance, or if I do this, and I can uh, get the advantage 
fantasia which is really great um use of use of the the camera work here and it's almost like you have two films with this because we obviously have like the search for the gold and then the killer constable um ends up being taken back to one of the bandits houses because he uh, gets knocked unconscious and he's taken back to uh, this bandit's house where his blind daughter like basically looks after the house and they have this scene where the him and this bandit have to pretend to be friends and she's like oh you didn't greet each other and it's like yes we did when you're out of the room and it's <laughs> then they have to like do this whole fake greeting when they you know they're both just having this intense stir off like they're working out how we're gonna like resolve our differences before they ultimately just like excuse themselves to go and fight in the rain in what appears to be a slurry pit which um of course, John Woo has obviously seen this movie and ripped it off. Um, he did the same thing in um, The Killer. Yeah. Where there's a blind girl unaware of the uh, other two men in the room. But that's okay. You know, that's, that's fine if he expresses his, uh, you know, he, he referen- his references. No one's original, are they, in this world? <laughs> it's true. But yeah, that, I mean, that's full of tension, that bit. Um, again, ex- I mean, this is just an excellent movie, right? It <laughs> and doesn't help though that the the bandit Fang looks exactly like the Killer Constable, which made it so yeah, confusing. Is... I thought it was like, is the Killer Constable got a daughter who's blind, and he's sort of like now he's got. Cause I I don't know what happened with watching this, but I must have zoned out for a minute. But I thought, oh, he's like he's sold the things, he's gonna go home to his daughter, and then it's like, no, wait, that's that's the bandit's daughter. So it was a little confusing, especially when you've then got a whole sequence where they're sort of thrown together, and it's all like, well, who's surviving this? Who's injured? So yeah, I mean, I don't. Are we? Can we spoil a film that's um forty three years old? I think we can, can't okay. we? Um, I mean, I mean, it. I, mean, the, I think the twist is also um, elevates the movie um, because, again, in a Wuxia film, the heroes, you know, he's he's writing someone. He's someone's been slighted. He's gonna he's gonna help the the, the village that's been hurt or the woman that's been wronged or his relative that he's avenging. Or she, or he's avenging. You know, in this case, he goes through all this. He hunts down the people that that have stolen all the money from the uh, from the royal bank, only to find out the person behind it is his boss, and he was sent after these people because his boss knew that he would kill them all, and therefore kill all the people that could um, dob him in and then he comes back and kills his boss but (laughs) the only downer in the film mate is how Killer Constable dies oh yeah because his boss apparently has his own like (laughs) Bond villain trap (laughs) set up hasn't he so well I think it's it is in his place isn't it yeah yeah he has a um... in his in his throne throne room no it was not a throne room was it I guess it's just his office he's the head of security isn't he that's right in his office, he has in the roof, um, well, in, in this this chair, it doesn't look like a throne. He flicks a switch and this mechanical array of arrows 
comes out of the ceiling and then just shoot downwards and Killer Constable is killed with an arrow. The only one that hits him just goes straight in the roof of his head. <laughs> and I don't know. I just felt that was a bit naff. Um, I don't mind him dying. That 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 makes sense thematically, especially as it's like a, a noir kind of idea. But um, yeah, if he's got, why would he have that? <laughs> what, what scenario has he got that prepared for? It's true. Um, yeah, I I thought this was a really great watch. I was really surprised, especially coming off Boxer's Omen and going into this one to find that the the light and night and day from each other. Those two movies, what you see with, get with Boxer's Omen is nothing like what you get with Killer Constable, and I think it really sort of switches things up. It does interesting things with the sort of fight sequences and. There's some definitely some uh, impressive bloodshed in this movie, but as a whole, the real sort of draw here is the story that's being told, and it really sort of as it goes on, it only sort of gets more sort of clever. It becomes less about how great these awesome fight scenes are, but in the story itself is what really sort of brings it all together. Um, and yeah, I think this was a really great pick uh, for Marcus, and I'm really glad that I saw it. Yeah, so I will pick one fight with Marcus. Okay. <laughs> it's not really a fight with Marcus at all. So this, the reason I reviewed it back in 2016, it was released by um, 88 Films. Um, who, you know, we know done quite a lot of Shaw Brothers. They did the, the release of Hex. In fact, it probably came out at the same time as the release of Hex. So they, they've, they're an interesting boutique label, blah, blah, blah. However, this film is now out of print. And... Just checking on eBay, there's two copies of it, mate. One's £90 and one's £349.99. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Why didn't I... Why didn't I buy... Of all the films I didn't buy, why didn't I buy this one? Oh, it's because I had a review download, I suppose. But, ah, I feel so annoyed. That could have paid for all my streaming services for the year <laughs> well if you go into if you go into amazon you can buy this on amazon prime for like five pound yeah but that's not real and physical okay not, we're not having this i think there's a hong again, kong legends version out as well i think i think i think there is i think there's also a, a, a region one version it's just the 88 films one in particular i i don't understand why i don't have it i mean i do but yeah. i don't if you know what i mean and um Obviously, just because something's £349.99 on eBay doesn't mean anyone's going to pay that much for it because no one spent 90 quid on it either. But uh, one for the completest, I think. But anyway, my point is, thank you, Marcus. Thank you for that. And 88 Films, if you're listening, let's do a second release of it, shall we? We should send them a message to see if they respond to it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's have a petition. Okay. Let's do a change.org to 88... For, they've probably just lost the... Um, they've probably lost the licence. <laughs> so, yeah, we'd love to have it out, but... Yeah. But it's, a, it's... it's I'm not quite sure it's a hidden gem, but it's like that a late-era... Late-ish era Shaw Brothers movie. I think it's just a... You said um, if there was a Shaw Scope Volume 3 by yeah. Arrow. Obviously, they'd have to get it off 88 films. Um, now, I don't think there ever will be a Shaw Scope Volume 3. It's got... A feeling they've done what they wanted to do and they've covered a couple of directors and they've covered two broad p- 
periods in Shaw Brothers films. Um, but I would love to see a, this. This belongs in a third set, which is late era Shaw Brothers. So films like this, like Hex, like Boxer's Omen. Oh, Boxer's um, Omen that, is in number on, two. No, Boxer's Omen's on number. That's in number two, isn't it? So things like Hex, um, Brave Archer, but also, but things like maybe like um. Behind the Yellow Line, the, the film which um, introduced Leslie Chung and Maggie Chung to the world. There's a couple of um, things like Love on Delivery, the Stephen Chow movie, which was Short Brothers only released in that year, and you know, which I know that you've enjoyed as well. I mean, God knows how you get the rights to something like that. But I think there is, I think there is room for a third set of slightly more, you know, in like the other sets only had one film which was a bit non bouchery or just a little bit off the beaten track i think there's a i think there's room for a, a third set which just has more interest not more interesting but different yeah. sorts of films and this definitely belongs on there well currently it's in there's number 20 on my top 50 first time watches for this year right between the vanishing and the hunt that's a that's a dark that's a dark trilogy for you to so <laughs> yeah i mean uh, at the moment, I mean, my my top three at the mo- moment is uh, the Menu Sorcerer and Bullet Train, as in the Brad Pitt one, not the Sonny Chiba one, because I watched that obviously outside this year. So, and then you got things such as like Agrary and Evil Dead Rises and April in the Extraordinary World. So, yeah, it's a real mixed batch on my uh, my first time watches this year. I'm going to be interested to see where this ranks come the end of the year. So, yeah, anything else you want to talk on this one, Sue? No, just well done, Marcus. Yes, thank you, Marcus, for taking part in Listener Roulette. If you would obviously like to throw your viewing idea at us and take part in Listener Roulette, please head to our Ko-Fi account. Full links are in the episode description below. If you buy three coffees and you can chew, can throw your hat in the ring and pick us something to watch, be it something good, something bad, maybe you want us to watch Battle Royale too. The choice is completely up to yours in Listener Roulette. You can also help the show by leaving us a review on any platform that you happen to listen to us, especially iTunes, as it really helps to raise the profile of the show. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it's time for tonight's feature presentation, which is The King of Comedy. Okay, so tonight's feature presentation is King of Comedy from 1999, not to be confused with the Martin Scorsese 1980 movie of the same name. The film is directed by Lee Kikchi and stars Stephen Chow. Um, This is one of those films which surprisingly has not had a release over here especially on the back of like the success of Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle um, which marked that sort of brief moment where Stephen Chow was sort of like a, a a mainstream player over here in the West um, but this film certainly has a following and its fans including Stephen who put it right at the top of our uh, top original top 50 yeah, I'm not going to lie, mate. It's probably my favourite Stephen Chow film. And this is the third, is it, that I've 
brought to the show. I think I did God of Cookery and Shaolin Soccer. Is that right? Yes, we've done God of Cookery, and uh, yeah, we've done done Shaolin Soccer, um, and so this is our third Stephen Chow movie. Um, here he plays uh, Win Tansu, who's the head of his village community centre, and when he's not moonlighting as a movie extra, he gives acting lessons and hosts community plays. But at the same time, he overthinks his work as a, as a movie extra, which often lands him in trouble. Um, at the same time, there's a group of club girls who've come to ask his help because they're aiming to act more like innocent schoolgirls so that they can make more money off their lucrative clients who visit their club, um, including Lou Pei Pei, who, while initially is sceptical of his advice, soon becomes a better actress through his instruction, and with the two ultimately falling in love. This is certainly an interesting movie, to say the least, Stephen. Um, I love the fact it opens up with a fantastic parody of a John of the John Woo movies, um, and also gives me another one for the girls with rockets list. So thank you for that. Yeah, so it's actually co-directed with um, Lick Chi Lee. I have no idea what co-directing means in <laughs> in this regard. Um, I don't quite often like um. What was the, there was a Stephen Chow film where it was incredibly clear which scenes he directed and which scenes somebody else had directed. But this one is, is less good. But the reason I like this one is that although it is a comedy, there's also a lot of drama in it as well. And for me, it kind of marks that change from when he was Stephen Chow is this this wacky comedy guy that's a load of Wong Jing produced movies and all they're all you know the the crazy non sequitur comedy that we got to use and got used to and then now there's a there's a solid dramatic through line does it make an awful lot of sense Mm, maybe not is it a bit morally dubious 24 years later maybe we'll talk about that a little bit there's some stuff in here which is a bit weird and maybe doesn't necessarily play too well today but yeah it's like a maturing of Stephen Chow as a creative person whether it not as an actor that's a different thing but in terms of the stories that he's trying to tell um, you're absolutely right it opens up with yeah, it just taking ripping the shit out of John Woo, isn't it? <laughs> Karen Mock as this um sort of film star, super action film star, Sister Cuckoo. I don't know what she was called yeah. in your subs, but that's what she's called in mine. Yeah, she's and, Sister Cuckoo. And and it's yeah, it's just ridiculous wire work and guns being pointed at each other from a few millimeters away and doves flying everywhere and yeah, it's um it's... I just thought they had they they had the standoff and it's like initially with dual pistols and then yeah. it becomes dual assault rifles and then it becomes dual <laughs> missile launchers, um, and all the while you've got more and more doves flying in the background. It, it's it's like what if John Woo did Dead or Alive, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's pretty much it's it's glorious, but it 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 I don't know. It 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 just also feels. 
looks a little bit controlled, if that makes sense, because it absolutely remains existent as part of a film set. So all the ridiculous stuff with, you know, there's a there's like these spring-loaded jumping things and wires and stuff like that all kind of remain in place. And then when it goes wrong, it's because of Stephen Chow's character screwing it up. Like you say, he, he takes his acting rather too seriously. <laughs> Although, again, yeah. it'll actually um, do him good in the end. There is a... We'll get there. But his, his commitment to his art in the end, ends up saving his life. It's, a, it's such a, an interesting uh, movie, because obviously you have the wackiness parts. Mainly when he's working as an extra, there's where the mainly sort of wackiness parts is, including like a number of scenes where things go wrong on the set, such as him launching Sister Cuckoo for a window. Um, he plays a, a hopping vampire, I think, in one point, or at least a Taoist monk, whose fire stump basically sees him running around with his arms on fire. Yeah, I think he's... Once again, I think he's, more fire stunts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I think he's meant just to be uh, like a priest or something, like you say, like a Taoist priest. And yeah, they set him, set his arms on fire, and then the director and his assistant just get start talking about something else. And he's sitting there with his hands, and he's catching... You know, he's getting more and more and more on fire, and no one's, and he won't do anything about it until. Uh, and then, of course, in that instance, he gets the blame somewhat incorrectly, whereas other things he's freaking hopeless at. <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah, but it's again, I don't know. There's a there's a, things. I'm just trying to think. Sort of some of those earlier films, like when we watched God of Cookery, completely random shit goes on, and there are parodies of movies or jokes around the Cantonese language that are untranslatable that just sort of kind of happen from nowhere like the whole pissing beef balls thing and it it, it doesn't it doesn't always play well um whereas this is taking the piss out of movie making which feels a little bit more grounded's the wrong word but I think you know what I mean yeah it's it, it it's more relatable hmm. I think there's a really great Jackie uh, Chan cameo at the start because he gets fired as an extra and it's sort of like let's just bring in someone else and they bring in Jackie Chan who's sort of like does the in there for like five seconds but it's such he's it's also an uncredited performance as well but he's so funny he just like turns up and like does his uh, his role for him and it when you get it, see him like in the village when we come off the movie set, because he has his ongoing uh, joke as well, where he's constantly trying to steal box lunches. Because apparently he doesn't care about making money, he just cares about getting box lunches. And then when we see him, like, when he's, like, working at the community centre, uh, can you explain to me what is the deal with the naked child who keeps turning up in this film? So that is one of the bits... I'm not sure plays too well, but I think that is... I think that, that might explain why it didn't get distribution over here as well. So, so there is this, and I'm going to be very politically incorrect, there's a little fat, naked Chinese boy that appears in numerous <laughs> scenes in the film. as, And I'm sure there is some, it's some reference to something. Um, but he appears not just at the film set, but he appears in his neighbourhood, and he appears in the—I think he appears in the post-credit scene. And yeah, I'm, I'm, oh yeah, he does. <laughs> I'm not sure 
why and i've never read it and i every time i come back to watch them i forget about him and then i think oh god yeah well, well that's a bit weird but it would be easily edited out but i'm sure i'm sure it's a funny joke to the people of hong kong yeah Again. i wasn't sure what was being lost in translation here but initially it's sort of like funny because it's you see how he's just sort of like locked into this cycle when he's uh, working at the community center so you see all these different people who come to the community center and the fact that there's this naked child just like pops up to sit on the pool table that's funny and then the <laughs> naked child just appears later where he's trying to teach this guy to be like a tough guy so he's not intimidated by the local triads and at the same time um his character like gets distracted again by this naked child <laughs> Who, for some reason, seems to be pulling at his penis. <laughs> He's like flicking his penis. Yeah, I just got. A, by the way, so the kid that you're talk, the guy that he's training, is training to be a gangster. <laughs> so he's, so he's, yeah, his his local community where he helps run the community center, which seems to be a mix of playing table tennis with the wrong bats and putting on plays. Um has some of the world's most useless wannabe triad members. <laughs> There's that kid with the annoying voice. And, but this this is just a normal school kid, a sort of college kid, that's been roped into this gang. As so Stephen Chow is trying to make him go and get protection money off someone, but they're already protected by genuine triads. <laughs> and <coughs> he wins. He ends up getting basically beaten up, traumatised, and then, but the triad guy just gives up and gives him his money anyway, so he kind of wins. But yeah, so Stephen Chow's sort of teaching all the wrong sorts of people his acting lessons, right? Because then, then that leads on to, um, what did you call them? Club girls. Yes, uh, they're, um, yeah, they're hostess um, club, because the whole thing is that they're there to provide like uh, companionship for these wealthy businessmen. <sighs> And they're prostitutes, this, mate. I think. I just, well, they don't actually conduct any sort of thing. They just know. provide companionship. Oh, oh no, they absolutely do, because that's a plot point later on. It's just he doesn't show it in the film, but we. Right. But it, it's so. I think you're just meant to assume that they are effective. Well, they are prostitutes, right? So that they call it hostessing, but they are being paid for sex. And so when they talk about being nice to people and concentrating, oh god, that's a fucking hilarious bit where they, one of the, Cecilia Chung's character tells one of them, "Oh no, what you got to do if you know if you don't like their face, just concentrate on a bit that's nice, like their ear or something." And then she goes to the guy, and it's everything she looks at gets exaggerated. There's green teeth. He's got cockroaches in his hair. Everything about him is disgusting. And she goes, "Oh, I can't do it." And then the madam says, well, she's managing to do it. Look, she's playing with his cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> but, however, I think this is the other reason why <laughs> the film probably has never had, as far as I know, a proper Western release. And it's a bit like, do you remember in God of Cookery, where it's all very funny, ha ha ha, and then suddenly Karen Mock gets shot in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a tonal shift, right? I do feel the fact that she's a she and her friends are prostitutes, and something fucking awful happens to Cecilia Chung Celia Chung's character near 
sort of two thirds the way through the film, and you think, well, hang on, how can this be a comedy? Do, do you know what I mean? It's like the, there's always this bizarre idea of what's what's funny, um, or, especially or what, when we look at like the Hong Kong comedies. Yeah, or what belongs um, in a comedy? I, I don't. Well, we I have... don't just, yeah, this isn't played for laughs, but it's. In a, it's in a place which has only been played for laughs up to now. It's very... Oh, my God. Yeah, the, we have that scene as well where there's a, a rich client that comes in and one of the larger girls, should we say, um, go is like, oh, I'll go in and I'll speak to him. And the guy just kicks her in the face and you have this exaggerated like earthquake moment when she falls over. I don't... Um, does he kick her in the face or does he kick her somewhere yeah. else? No, he kicks her in the in the face because you see the foot come through the curtain. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember um, that, yeah. But yeah, and, 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 and so yeah, so so there are, I think some of this humour, and we, we've spoken many, many times how some Asian humour, and particularly Hong Kong humour, probably doesn't translate. And we do have to remember this film's getting on for 25 years old. It was a different time, and it was even more of a different time in Hong Kong. But... It, it just basically the bit I'm getting at is that there has been this whole so we haven't really talked about Celia Chung's character have we but she's one of the club girls that um, has comes for lessons and initially she's completely dismissive of him but over the course of the next 20 minutes <laughs> they they sort of fall in love and we'll talk about that a little bit more later and because she's fallen in love, she's, she's, she was already not really into being a club girl from as far as I can see. She's a bit, she's quite sassy, but I'm not convinced she's totally into it. Um, but she's fallen in love with Stephen Chow's character. She wants to get out of it. But the that rich guy, the, the, the face-kicking guy, has yeah. got a real thing for her. And when she turns him down, he beats the living shit out of her in quite a... In fact, that's the one he kicks. She's the one he kicks somewhere else, isn't she? And and then really lays into her. And it's really like, Jesus, that's a tonal shift. Don't worry, there's more of a tonal shift coming along in the final act. But that is just like really, oh, oh, I'm not, I'm not laughing anymore. And in fact, I can no longer laugh at Celia Chung's character for the rest of the movie. Because she carries the injuries and the bruises for the rest of the film. It's really weird. This is one of my favourite films ever, by the way, but I am really calling this it out I was for wondering, that. And this is why I couldn't understand of like all the Stephen Chow movies, why this one in particular is your favourite. I, I, mean, I like Love on Delivery. I thought that was really fun. And obviously Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle were both really fun. But this one was just really weird. I mean, I don't even understand why it's called King of Comedy because... He's not a comedian. He's just an acting coach. Um, so I don't know. Is this a brag by Chow that he sees himself as the king of comedy, or it doesn't well, it make might, any it's, sense? It's, well, I think I think, and again, people may um, tell me others, but I think he obviously at this point in his career, he has had success after success after success. So we've had. Um, let's just think. Where are we? Um, We'll have had God of Cookery. We'll have had so this is just before Shaolin Soccer, isn't it? So it's certainly in the Hong, yeah. in in Hong Kong and China. He is the king of comedy. 
um, from Beijing with Love, we'll have had by now, we'd have had, I think, sort of the Forbidden City Cop movies. Um, like I say, he, but this to me is him saying, actually, I'm more than this wacky clown that's appearing alongside other people. And this is the beginning of him as Stephen Chow, the auteur, auteur, just a bit, let's be, uh, let's be uh, all French about it. And I think it's probably suggesting that actually he's more than just the king of comedy. So this this is the kick. Do you see what I mean? That he's sort of saying, actually, I'm, I'm more than this. You can call me the king of comedy, but actually I can do more. And I think he, he does a fair enough job. But it's the fact that this is this is this is more of a, a comedy drama is him trying to say I'm, I'm a little bit more mature now. Now he'll continue this on through Shaolin Soccer, through Kung Fu Hustle, um, up until CJ7, which is basically like this kid's film that he did, and he didn't do anything for years after CJ7. But yeah, it's just this, this sort of, what I would call this sort of his second or third period of his movies. Um, and it's just announcing himself as maybe a slightly mature, more mature artist. Um, saying that, he surrounds himself with familiar faces. So, Karen Mock, we've already said she's in um, God of Cookery. She's a well-known ex-single, right? As, as all the sort of the female people that star with him get to be known as. Um, Ungman Tat has got a role in this film. Um, so, it, it's, not, it's not a complete reinvention, but it's, I, know, I guess it's, it, it feels like a maturing, except for the fact that actually a lot of the jokes are incredibly immature. But that's all right. I like immature jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, having a look at, look at his Wikipedia page now, and it says that he dated Karen Mock, um, and that he was proclaimed the king comedy by the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So they are apparently the ones who uh, bestowed this title upon him. Um, I see. He's also a member of the uh, Chinese People's Political Conservative. Um, Sorry, consultative conference, um, but he often apparently arrives late <coughs> or leaves early, and has never put forward any proposals. I think. I think to be fair, I think there is some, a bit like Jackie Chan, Stephen Chow the person. I think there are potential. He's potentially problematic. Yeah, I think. I think his association with the uh, with the CCCP is you know it's easy for us to say over here that's not a good thing but i think that's problematic i think the way he's dated a lot of his co-stars makes you wonder about stuff um there's there's always stories aren't there about where he had to go to canada for a bit and things like that so there's always been probably rumors about him and the triads and things like that so i think he's problematic he has obviously with his most recent movies like Mermaid and New King of Comedy, which is this weird remake of this movie with a, a a lady in it, you know, he's taken the Chinese coin, the mainland Chinese coin. But again, it's very easy for you and me to sit here behind our microphones and say, "I'd never take, I'd never take all millions of dollars from China to make a film," because I'm going to tell you now, mate, I would. <laughs> Not going to lie, I would. But yes, I think I think he's problematic but he still made some of 
to my mind, some of the greatest Asian movies of all time. So <laughs> I've got very little to say on this this film okay. itself. All it's, right. Um... Well, then let me go on a Maradona star rant. Then, yeah, please, it. please do so, tell me so, why so, you like this so much. So the then. other reason I love this movie is for a particular performance in it. So um, the character of the club girl that he falls in love with is um, played by Celia Chung, and it's one of her first ever roles. Um, so even though Karen Mox in this movie as like a as as basically as sort of co-starring alongside um, Chow, she she's the sort of she's like almost like the second lead, and she's just fucking amazing in this movie, and she's got this voice, this husky, sexy voice like no other Chinese woman I've ever seen has. She sounds amazing. But she's sort of kind of young and raw in this. Um, she was in another film in this year. That's what the other films actually won what she won all the awards for. But she's amazing in this. Now the tragedy of Celia Chung is I don't think she ever really um, built a lot on her. She, she, she was very popular for about five years, and she's got a fairly decent um, set of uh, a cinematic CV. But she never became the superstar I think she should have become that this film showed up. So I think it's one of my favourite female performances in a Stephen Chow movie. Um, so and sort of talking back to something you said before, the reason that we know she's a prostitute is because they fall in love over a date or two and she sleeps with him and then he leaves her money because he thinks she's only slept with him because she's a prostitute. <laughs> And, th- and that that causes some upset although they get over it a lot but that that's how we know they are genuinely a prostitute um i also think karen mock has never looked better i'm not one that's particularly normally blown away by karen mock uh, visually she's not she's not my type as they say but i think she's gorgeous and brilliant and funny in this movie <laughs> and her character is fascinating and she has this kind of romantic subplot with Stephen Chow's character. And then there's this bit where... So basically, somehow, he manages to get a role in her next movie as the lead man. There's there's basically there's some superstar actor that hasn't been able to make it. So she's managed somehow to get Stephen Chow in. And he starts practicing for it, and they go into all the press, and they 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 build up this kind of relationship, and then the big film star ends up being available again, and they have to kick Stephen Chow out of the movie. But Karen Mock's character, there's this real, um, what's the word? Um, she's. It's a real complexity because obviously she has to do this for business. She's really upset that she's upset him. And she's also had the wherewithal to realise that Celia Chung's character is the one that he loves and that truly loves him. So there's this wonderful complexity in her character. I think she's amazing in it. So I think the female roles are great. Now, what we haven't spoken about, and I think you'll have something to say about, is the final act where it turns into a completely different film. <laughs> <coughs> So all the way through the film, we've had Ung Mung Tat's character has been like the, I don't know, like a cook that's looking after the, 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 the meals for the extras. And there's been this sort of tension between Stephen Chow and Ung Mung Tat's character where Ung Mung Tat's character says, you don't deserve to have 
the meal. I mean, it's only like in a fucking polystyrene box. It's nothing special. But he keeps telling him he can't have it because he's not good enough and he's a failure and blah, blah, blah. It turns out that Unwin Tat's character is actually an undercover policeman and has actually been... I don't. I, I think that the thing is, is that he's been almost training Stephen Chow's character up and testing him whether he could help him out on the case. I think to start with, he, you know, he, he just was just picking on him. But then Stephen Chow, after a whole bunch of disastrous failures, including losing the film role, basically just stands up to him and takes the meal so he feels he's owed and just doesn't... And then suddenly, and when Tat's character says, right, by the way, I'm an undercover policeman. I'm going to go into um, into this gangster's mansion but I can't, but he'll pat me down. I can't carry any wire on me. So what we're going to do, you're going to pretend to be a delivery boy and that's going to contain the bug, the, the, the audio bug in it. So you're going to come 10 minutes later. It all goes to shit. It turns into a Tarantino movie for 10 minutes. People get shot. There's blood everywhere. And... Stephen Chow's character is put in a great deal of peril, but he's so committed to his acting role that he somehow survives um, until when Tat's character says, cut, which is a callback to the previous stuff. And you just think, I'm pretty sure 10 minutes ago, this was some kind of love story, but somewhere on the line, it became a gangster movie. And we don't really even have time to rest on our laurels on that because then suddenly the film ends on a outrageous advert for Pringles and it kind of breaks the fourth wall and they're at a sort of a press junket for this film. How did you find the last 20 minutes of the movie? <laughs> to be honest, I found this film just sort of like flitted all over the place. We have these like two storylines that really have no real sort of link to each other and as I said the fact that we then have have this bizarre undercover story as well it's all like I think I was sort of like tuning out at that point with the film I was sort of like really struggling to sort of stick with it and I think it's mainly because compared to like the other films I've seen them, there wasn't this sort of like strong story like it felt like a bunch of uh, stories that you would just like taping together and like being held together as loosely as possible and I think I was also still pretty freaked out by the naked child sequence it just felt weird and it sort of like left me with a weird sort of feeling for the rest of the film yeah maybe so you didn't fall in love with Celia Chung basically I think that's the key thing you either if you don't fall in love with her I think you can find this film quite, oh I mean um, I I loved her and I loved um Karen Mock as well I thought uh, both both really good. I mean, Celia Chung is absolutely adorable in this this film. Um, her relationship with Stephen Chow's character is kind of not so plausible. Mm. I think if he had just sort of focused on one of the one of these plot lines, so if he had been like you know just the the clumsy extra, or he just focused on the running of things at the brothel, I think that would have been more interesting than trying to combine these multiple story threads into this one film, because I think ultimately it just doesn't work for me as a whole. It sort of like works in these individual sort of storylines, but when you combine together, it stops sort of working for me and sort of found it harder to hold my interest with the thing. 
I think um I think the film's relatively short running time counts against it here. It f- feels the 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 love story between Chow and Chung feels a bit rushed. They sort of go from quite an antagonistic relationship to having slept together, which is quite rare, remember, in an Asian film. People sleep, literally sleeping together. Um, happens really quickly. And we've got this weird crime thing, which wasn't needed. I mean, it's quite well done, but it just doesn't fit it. And we have Chung getting violently beaten up as well. And just, I just, I just think there's too much. It's only about 90 minutes long. And I feel there's about 120 minutes of film in here. And I'm quite happy the film's 90 minutes long, but I would have I would have done with less Little Naked Boys and less Angman Tat's storyline. Or just had yeah. that as just being a rando thing that happens. <laughs> you know, that, that could be Moly Thai stuff going off over there, but it didn't need to lead to anything. It, um, yeah, it could have just been this sort of antagonistic relationship, uh, kind of like a JD and the janitor in Scrubs. mm yeah, that would have been a lot more effective. He didn't need to be expanded. I mean, he didn't need to be this undercover police officer. Um, I think this is this is my main issue with the film because I said it's it starts off so strong, and then it sort of like lost its way around the halfway point. And suddenly, when you start like, as I said, start reworking characters to sort of add additional plot lines in, it really doesn't help the film, even though it's got a particularly short short runtime. So. I just, um, as I said, I was just surprised, really, that this all got rated the highest of the Stephen Chow movies, really. So, oh, I, I, th- I think it's because I love Celia Chung in this. I think also the scene where Stephen Chow is doing the the run through of a scene with Karen, with Sister Cuckoo, and he's told to be emotional and he's crying. His nose starts oh, running. No, no. <laughs> Is one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen outside of a horror movie. <laughs> well, that I would say is the most unsettling thing in in the film. But there again, we have the outtake at the end where Stephen Charles with the naked boy pee, helping him pee in the gutter, <laughs> and it's like, isn't this a wacky outtake? And it's like, I don't get why you find this so funny. Oh. But it's it's so creepy. Like when he's supposed to be teaching the guy to be a triad, and he's just standing there, seemingly looking at this little boy's penis. And I was like, Where, "Where's the joke that I'm missing here with this this thing?" Yes, the child being naked is funny for like the first thing because it comes out of nowhere, but to make it this prolonged joke in a scene that is already kind of funny to begin with, it just makes no sense. It just becomes really uncomfortable to watch. I think there are. In Stephen Chow films, I think there's probably a history of this. The the other one, which is a repeated joke, it's not in this film, funny enough. But you know there's the guy with the beard that dressed up as the woman? Have you seen that in about <laughs> half of the movie, Stephen Chow movie? I can't remember yeah. the guy's name. But it never really... Nothing's ever done with it. It just is a thing that's in all the movies. <laughs> it's not... I'm not being transphobic or anything about it. It's just there. And it's like this repeated joke. That It's not like a repeated joke within a movie. It was within about 10 of the films. And I don't know what the joke is. Other than here's a guy with a beard. And of course now that isn't 
I don't think it ever was funny. It's just perplexing. Um, but yeah, the, I've got to admit, the naked boy don't understand. If anyone can explain to us, please let us know. Um, and if no one can explain, I think well, we'll just have to write to Mister Chow, won't we? <laughs> Say, Stephen, why? We, we, we've got questions, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm sad you didn't enjoy it, and it's I I, I get it. Most people love. Um, Kung Fu Hustle and I get why people love Kung Fu Hustle and I really love Shaolin Soccer and I understand why that is um, and there are others like from Beijing with Love or Love and Delivery it's probably a more immediate yet crazy but there's just something about this film that just to me just is it's, it's Stephen Chow maturing as an artist apart from the little fat naked boy Yep. Um, and on that bombshell I will advise you to all direct your questions towards Stephen <laughs> he will more than happily answer any questions you have regarding this because I I just don't get it but uh, that that's me I guess I'll tell you um, the other th- one other little fact factor is that Celia Chung is kind of one quarter British and was raised in Australia funny enough and Karen mocks half Welsh so there's a there's it's nearly a British film, mate. <laughs> uh so that was obviously King of Comedy. Um Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Um and leave us a review, especially on uh, iTunes as that really helps raise support for the show. If you've got an idea of uh the sort of films you'd like to see, also leave that in the comment section as well. Um, we are on Facebook we are on Instagram we are on Freds, we are on Blue Sky so you can find us in many places now and you can also check out our full archive episodes at asiansilverfilmclub.wordpress.com but it's my turn to pick next and I'm going to choose a musical for our next episode Stephen, because we I don't think we've done any musicals on the show Oh God! <laughs> I hate musicals, but I'm hoping you're going to pick something interesting. Well, obviously, I'm going to pick something. Yeah, yeah. Um, Go on. So, on the next episode, we're going to be looking at the wild and wacky musical that is Legend of the Stardust Brothers. Okay, that was on Mubai, wasn't it? A Japanese film, yeah. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's on a number of platforms. It's on the Arrow Player as well. So, because I believe it's a Fed Window Films release. Okay, I have watched ten minutes of Legend of the Stardust Brothers. So you'd when... be in the same place as myself then, <laughs> because I watched. I started watching it when it was on Mumbai, and the subtitles stopped working. And, oh no. And... <laughs> I think I think I had a bug on my TV and, and the Mubai client, and I couldn't watch it, and then it left Mubai. But if it's on other other platforms, yeah. I am sure I will. Um, I'll be able to buy, uh, be able to watch it. So yes, I started watching this one, and then I thought, you know what? I think we need to talk about this one in more detail than just passing. So we on our next episode, we're going to be looking at Legend of the Stardust Brothers. So. 
make sure you join us for that. But uh, until then, thank you as always for listening. Thanks back to Stephen. Pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be back next time, as I said, to talk about Legend of the Stardust Bros. But until then, good night. Hey! This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.